ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, borei pri hagafin, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamoka. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh Norat e'ilot 
blessing of Messiah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. La'asot et ha-Shabbat la-doratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Kimi tion te tsetu 
Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat uh, broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. This uh, Sabbath is called the Sabbath of Naso, and we are in the second portion of Numbers. Uh, Naso means census or the count, and again, the book of Numbers carries this theme of the counting up of the children of Israel and how many in each, each tribe. This particular portion deals with the counting up of within the Levitical family. And it counts them up and then gives them certain duties, uh, each of the elements associated with the tabernacle. Now, we know Aaron and his sons were the priests, but the other brothers of Levi uh, were also had responsibilities of transporting the tabernacle, of taking it down, setting it up, and so forth. And Levi had all of these responsibilities, again, associated with the temple system and the, and the um, tabernacle that was in the wilderness. Um, the Torah portion also expands to a very interesting topic called the law of jealousy. And this is a particular provision in the teaching of the Torah where if a man suspects that his wife has been unfaithful and there's no witnesses to substantiate any misdeed, then he has the right to bring her down to the temple to the priest and admit to her that he is jealous and that he's got a problem and he, he not, can't necessarily prove it. And there was a way to resolve that. And the way that would resolve it is that they would... Um, write out this curse on a piece of parchment or something that could receive it, and they would wash, wash the words off into a cup of water, and they would gather some of the dust of the ground of the tabernacle or the temple, and they would put it into that cup, and they would pronounce that this was, cup was a curse, and that she would then be challenged before the altar and a sacrifice would be made uh, concerning this whole matter uh, to the Lord. And uh, the whole idea was if she was guilty, she would drink this cup and she'd be cursed. Uh, but if she was innocent, she had the ability to drink the cup and there would be no harm that would come to her. But in either case, it would be a way to resolve the spirit of jealousy that was in the man. Now, don't ask me about what were the positions if it was a wife who thought a husband was being unfaithful. That's not what this is about. It's strictly about this. And this is, it was not, it, it was in the Torah, but it wasn't a highly practical thing. There wasn't a lot of this going on. So one of the questions that has been posed uh, about this is, why is this in the Torah? Why do we have this particular instruction? 
It's only come to light in the latter years of the behavior of Israel, particularly in the years of when the Messiah came and was rejected, uh, that there's been this theme in the life of Israel that, that Israel is married to the Lord, that he's the husband. And oh, by the way, God himself says of himself, he is a jealous God. And that Israel has been unfaithful and essentially committed spiritual adultery with other gods. And that what it's really telling us is that God has the right to take us before his altar and to challenge us directly about being faithful or unfaithful to him, and that he can put us through what's called the trial of ordeal, this, this cup, drinking of this cup that brings a curse. Uh, let me go ahead and expand further. You're looking at the justification of why God gets to come at the end of the age and put us through the great tribulation. He is proving out who is faithful to him and who is not faithful to him. Now, we uh, have learned that in the past, historically, when they did do this, most often, most cases, if the woman was unfaithful before she drank the cup, she would repent. And she would be forgiven because she had offered the sacrifice to the Lord. So by simple repentance, she could be restored to her husband. The spirit of jealousy would be removed from the man. The matter would be resolved. Same thing is with us. Despite all the history of God's people in misbehaving before the Lord, when we come up to these events called the Great Tribulation, the trial bore ordeal, if we repent beforehand, then we're going to be restored to the Lord, and we're not going to have the issues of the ordeal and the curses that come with it. However, a failure to repent and going into that and being guilty is going to bring about a great ordeal, a great curse. And you're really looking at the justification and the reasons for why God is even going to have a great tribulation and why he's going to test his people and, and put us all to the test. He has the right to put us to the test because he says of himself, I'm a jealous God. I admit it. I will not tolerate you being unfaithful to me with other gods. And whether the Christians want to admit it or not, it's rampant. We in the United States, other nations, believers, um, well, I won't get into the detail, but let me just say it this way. We don't, we don't have a prayer to defend ourselves against our behavior before a holy God. To tell you the truth, if he was really being just, we'd all get wiped out. However, because of his mercy, because of a, a simple understanding of a procedure here, we're given the opportunity to repent, but yes, there is a judgment that is coming. Um, that's a very interesting passage, and here you don't hear a lot of that taught and it's fascinating as to the details associated with it. Uh, in this portion also, we go into chapter 6, we learn all about Nazarite vows. And that's another rather fascinating subject um, for us, in that the, it was possible for a man or a person, they would put themselves under a vow, a Nazarite vow, 
and they were forbidden from having anything to do with the, the pleasure of a grape. They couldn't come into contact with the skin of a grape, the juice of a grape, wine, or strong drink, as the Bible says. They must refrain for those things during the period of time they're completing the vow. To complete the vow required them to go to a priest in the temple and go through this procedure in which all the hair was cut off. Uh, there was certain other things that took place with it. Um, and interestingly enough, we don't hear a lot of instances of how this Nazarite vow and the requirement was being done uh, in the Old Testament after the commandment is given. However, in the New Testament, we have a very significant element of it in which that when the Apostle Paul came back to the Jerusalem area and the rumor was out that he was teaching uh, people not to keep the law, not circumcise their sons, blah, 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 that that was all false. And James made the suggestion to him, why don't you take these four men, these four Messianic believers that are under Nazarite vow, they're going to the temple and there's a, a fees they have to pay. Why don't you take them in, you pay the fees for them to assist them, and then that will spread amongst all of the believers that Paul keeps the law and that this rumor about him not keeping the law and encouraging other people the other way, it will be dismissed. Now, this thing is in, and, uh, in the New Testament, and he did that. He went to the temple, and he paid the fees. By the way, let me tell you what the fee is, an annual salary. He had to do it four times. He had to take a whole ton of money and go pay these fees. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that Paul is very serious about keeping the law, and this rumor about him not keeping the law or teaching against the law is absolutely false, and it is. But to this day, in modern Christianity, we walk around listening to people say, the Apostle Paul came teaching to do away with the law, and that he gave new things for the church. Absolutely false can be proved in the New Testament scriptures. The evidence is right there. Do you ever? I never heard that when I was in the church and Christianity. I never heard anybody ever stand up and say, "Oh, by the way, there is this rumor against the Apostle Paul." And by the way, in the New Testament, it's proved that he didn't do that. Yet, we got a lot of preachers who use the letters of Paul to argue against the Torah and the law. In fact, the Apostle Peter, in referencing this whole problem, makes a statement about there are some things that Paul has written that are hard to be understood in which those who are unstable and not taught twist to their own destruction. What Peter was referring to, there are people who don't know the basic instructions of the Torah. And as a result, because they don't understand those, they don't understand what the Apostle Paul was teaching and doing. They, get, they can't get it. They think he's doing something different. And they think that he was there. In fact, this rumor is so strong that Judaism believes the rumor. And in fact, if you sit down with some rabbis, Judaism will argue 
that Yeshua didn't come and start Christianity. The Apostle Paul started Christianity. And by the way, the church has heralded that. The church keeps referencing the teaching of the Apostle Paul as the basis of the church instead of listening to what the Messiah said. The Messiah and his apostles, they all kept Sabbath. They kept kosher. They went to the temple to worship. They kept the law. Now, the Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. God commissioned him specifically to do it. Why? Because it turns out the Apostle Paul, in his depth of understanding of the Scripture, knew that God's great plan for Israel was going to involve the whole world. That he really understood that if you're of Abraham's seed, you know, and, and through faith in the Messiah, you belong to the family of Abraham. And so those who come to faith in the Messiah are adopted, they're elected, they're grafted in to the rest of Israel. They're not necessarily Jews, but they're part of Israel. And they're the commonwealth of Israel. These are all the things that Paul taught. Being the, the, and, and in fact, when Paul came back to Jerusalem and this accusation about him not keeping the law and so there was a dispute about how the Gentiles really get saved. In Acts 15, the whole matter is resolved because James quotes from the prophets saying specifically from Amos that God's plan is for the Gentiles and all of the nations to come in to be part of this. Right along with the great commission that the Messiah gave, go into all nations and make disciples. That was always God's plan. That's not a new idea for the church. So these messianic, you know, you know what I've actually heard some preachers say? I've actually heard them say concerning the apostle Peter going to the temple, Paul keeping the Sabbath, um, others keeping the law, that they were all mistaken, that they didn't really understand yet about what the Messiah had really done. And they literally claim that Paul and Peter, when they spoke to us, were actually lying to us, but it was for our, our good. And if you stop and think about that, do you really believe that our faith and our teachers and so forth are based on lies there is a religion that I know of that uses that. That's the one that follows Satan. Satan is the father of lies. He uses that technique of lying to the people to deceive, to distort, and misdirect uh, the people. And boy, do we have a major one going on with regard to this. And even though the instances are in the New Testament of these things being done, the average preacher, Christian preacher will say, oh, that's all been done away with. Well, who, who did away with that? Well, Paul taught us that, that, that that's not part of us anymore. Sometimes the ignorance that exists by certain spiritual leaders, I just don't understand how God can be so merciful. I... But you know what? I, I have a feeling there's a day coming of accountability. And all of those shepherds 
uh, of the flock who misled, misdirected, and were deceived, I think are going to be held to account. And some is going to be very seer, severe, and some are going to discover they thought they were doing great things and then discovered they weren't really doing that many great things for the Lord. Again, you know, if you go back to what the Messiah said about the law and about the kingdom, he said, whoever uh, teaches these things and annuls the, any commandment of the Lord, if you annul a commandment and teach others, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever teaches these commandments and keeps them, he will be great in the kingdom of heaven. There is a day of accountability coming. And I think there's a lot of folks that we've put on high on the registry of being in the faith. And when we get to the kingdom, aren't going to be so high on the registry um, as to the behavior with regard. All right. Enough preaching about the temple, uh, the, the Torah portion for this week. Let me tell you what the Haftor portion is about. Because of the discussion about the Nazarite vow, our Haftor portion comes to us from the book of Judges. Now, if you recall, let me do just a quick introduction to Judges. This is a period of time when there was no king, there was no central leader, the conquest of the land had been completed. Joshua is not around anymore. Nobody was in charge of the army of Israel. You know, they'd all broken out into individual tribes, and they were basically responsible for their own affairs and taking care of business themselves. Well, because of the diversity, the number of them, the regions of the land, uh, suddenly the Philistines that were down in the area of Gaza and in that southeastern part of Israel all the way over into the hill country there, short of the mountains, the Philistines had come in. By the way, Philistine means invader. And we believe the Philistines that were in that region are not native people to the region. They had actually come from other places, but they had settled here and they were conquesting the land. They were a constant problem for the Israelites and for the tribes. First of all, they disarmed them and then made them kind of subject to them. And because Israel had no ability to defend itself and those tribes for it, uh, trouble came. Well, originally the tribe of Dan was down in that region. They were in the area. Because of their idolatry, they had to be moved. They moved all the way up to the north part, up to the where the Jordan River begins. Jordan means out of Dan. So when they moved up there, they named the river after the fact that the tribe of Dan was up there. But this is the time when the tribe of Dan is down in the southeastern region. And our story is about, uh, Judges is about certain champions, certain leaders in various tribes that rose up at a particular moment that assisted Israel in dealing with a, a difficult situation or a contentious thing. And in particular, you know, here's the stories about Deborah, you hear the story of Jephthah, and then we also hear the story of Samson. And so this particular Haftoah portion is about Samson because Samson was called to be a Nazarite from the womb. And that's the reason why we have the comparison. 
I want to read to you this portion. It's very fascinating. It's about how the Lord came to the parents of Samson to announce what God was going to do with him in the aid of the people that was there dealing with the Philistines. Beginning in chapter 13 at verse 2 of Judges, it says, And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manah, Manoah, and his wife uh, was barren and had no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, one of the things, if you go back into our Torah portion, it says about the Nazarite vow, you're forbidden to drink wine, come into contact with grapes, even the skin of a grape. Um, you can't eat raisins or anything like that. And you can't have strong drink. And you can't cut your hair. Your hair and, and part of the procedure of you completing the vow is the removal of your hair that you grew during that and how that's um, handled and taken care of. So here's the same provisions for the, the law of the Nazarite being applied to and being told to the mother of Samson even before she conceives. It says, you have to start doing this. I want you to stay away from that stuff so that when he's born, he has never, not even through his mother. And then once he's born, do not cut his hair. Um, you know, from, you know that when children grow up, but particularly boys, when they grow up and they're toddlers, one of the first, <laughs> one of the first things dad wants to do is when that kid starts growing is let's get that kid's hair cut so he looks like a guy. Well, that provision was stopped and they said, no, you will let his hair grow uh, for it. Let me continue on. Verse six. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. Now, we don't get all the other details exactly what his appearance was, but this verse says he was very striking in his appearance, and she had immediate thought, I'm, I must be talking to an angel. I have to be talking to some superior um, spiritual uh, person. To it, And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth uh, to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom thou hast sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. That's a very interesting prayer. Um, I think that's an excellent thing that he did there. His wife has come, and there's some serious spiritual decisions being made here about the child they're about to have. And he's the father. He's the one responsible. 
And so he's now weighing on him, what will be my responsibility? You know, my, my wife has been told certain things. What is my responsibility with regard to this son? And so he's asking, Lord, fill me in. Tell me how I'm to deal with all of this. Verse 9, and God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, and Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose, followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. I want to verify you're the guy that originally started this. Okay, we got that straight. I know who you are now. And Manoah said, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? You know, a father in those days would guide the son as to the work they would be doing. If, for example, the father was a carpenter, in all likelihood, you'd be training your son to be a carpenter. If you were a merchant, then you'd train your son how to be a merchant. In other words, part of the training up of your son was to teach them a profession so that they're able to take care of themselves and their family. So he's asking this basic question. Okay, well, if this kid comes up, what, what do you want me to train him to do? You know, what, what I'm going to have responsibilities to teach and train him. What do you want me to teach him and train him? So the angel of the Lord said to Noah, let the woman pay attention to all that I've said. Uh, she should not eat anything that comes from the vine or drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Basically, the Lord said, the questions you're asking, Manoah, are not that important. We have other business to take care of here. It's not going to be significant what vocation he's in or what you train him to do. Just follow the instructions that has been given to your wife, and the Lord will do the rest. And you don't have, you don't have to train him up to follow in your footsteps or whatever the case may be. Verse 15, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you. He wants to offer him a meal. And the kid is not a human kid. It's a goat. He wants to offer him a goat dinner. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, thank you. Uh, thank you. Detain me. I, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. You know, that kid you want to eat? I, I don't want to eat it, but why don't you take that and make that an offering to the Lord? You know, a whole burnt offering. Is he going to build an altar? enough? For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Now, this is kind of interesting. At this particular point, because of what is conversed and what has taken place, Manoah thinks having this conversation with this special person who's appeared to his wife is a regular person. In all appearances. In other words, she saw something awesome that told her that this might be an angel because there, there's some, uh, something awesome about this person. But he now is at the point where he's not seeing the awesome spiritual person. He thinks he's seeing a regular guy. Now, that shows you there was a distinct difference between Manoah and his wife with regard to understanding spiritual things. Apparently, his wife is much more tuned in on spiritual things than he is. 
I would remind you that part of the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, it talks about that we who are believers, we who are receive the Spirit of God, we receive a whole new language and understanding, spiritual words, spiritual thoughts, which a natural person regards as pure foolishness. They, they have no idea what is really going on. They are unable to discern spiritual things. And that's what we have in the world today. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Uh, I've, there's been a couple of times when and I, I consider myself relatively stable in the faith and to a certain degree have a strength in my faith. And I, there's been times when I have been confronted. I'm talking to an unbeliever. I could say something too very dramatically and very boldly to them about the faith. And there's something that kicks in and stops me that says everything that you could possibly say to him, he hasn't, does not have the capacity to receive it or understand what you said. And it stops me from, quote, wasting my breath. I don't think that is a case of fear or apprehension. I think that's a case of discernment. I can discern that this person is not going to receive what I'm going to say, so why try to say it? But this person over here is open to the Spirit, and I can speak into their life, speak into their heart, because they're spiritually paying attention. So we see... Manoah is kind of this natural guy, and his wife is this very spiritual woman, and God has selected her to bring forth the life of Samson. All right, so with that said, um, the uh, verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it as wonderful? That is a direct reference to the Messiah. The Messiah was standing there in front of them. And the Messiah had commissioned Samson from the womb to do his work. So Manoah took the kid with the grain offering, offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw us, they fell on their faces to the ground, and had you seen it, you would have done the same thing. Incredible. This is one of those times when the Messiah appeared earlier than when he came to do the work of redemption. As you know, Samson goes on to have a rather interesting life, is seduced, does have long hair, does all kinds of great feats, defeats the one-man wrecking army on the Philistine army and so forth, and ultimately to the point where he's deceived, his hair is cut, he loses his strength, he's enslaved. And the end of the story is when his hair grows out and he gets strength again, He's being ridiculed in the Philistine temple with all of the dignitaries. And he pulls the, the chains and he pulls the pillars down of the temple and everyone is crushed, including himself. But he single-handedly wiped out the leadership of the Philistines, you know, in that region. That's what God used him was to stop the Philistines 
and prevent them from harming Israel that much more. That same group of Philistines will later on, this is who King David will be dealing with when he has to come and fight the Philistines at various times. All right, so that's our portion for this week and our Haftorah portion. I trust that you will be encouraged on and refreshed on this Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of John, uh, to chapter 8, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, let me do uh, a prayer, turning this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for choosing us from among all peoples, for giving us your Sabbath of rest, and we thank you, Lord, for this time now that we can dig into your word once again. Father, I pray that we would be blessed by uh, the words and the teaching uh, that will come from this message, Father. Uh, We thank you for your word being alive and powerful, and uh, Father, may it minister to us wherever we might be, whatever situation we might be in this week. Father, I pray that we would be uh, strengthened strengthened by your word uh, as we study it on this Sabbath. We thank you for all of these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. So our Torah portion this week, entitled Naso, uh, has a couple of different uh, subjects that are covered uh, back in the Torah portion. Um, it comes from, starts in Numbers chapter 5, and there's a couple of laws that are given to us from the Torah, uh, procedures that are done within the Torah, temple service. This is outside of normal sacrifices that were given, whether that's daily offerings or some of the regular sacrifices that were listed for us in the early parts of Leviticus. And there's a couple of procedures that are given for us. There's the law of jealousy that concerns when a spirit of jealousy comes over a husband and he can have, there's a procedure by which he can bring in his wife um, to see whether she has been unfaithful or not. There's also the instruction in the law of the Nazarite, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. And uh, also in this portion, we receive the Aaronic blessing, the priestly blessing by which the Lord pours out his blessing, puts his name upon the children of Israel, among other things. So this is also a very long tour portion, uh, thanks to Numbers chapter 7, with, which has a lot of repeating words in it. Um, but with this teaching, what I intend to do is uh, bring out some of the principles of the Torah portion from the New Testament. Of course, that's what the Brit Hadashah portions are for. I've brought you to John chapter 8, which this is a passage that we've covered before. We covered this several weeks ago. And it is, of course, the story in which the adulterous woman was brought before the Messiah in the temple. Yeshua was in the temple, and the the people of the temple, the Pharisees, brought in this woman and said she was caught in the act of adultery, and they were testing the Messiah to see what it is that uh, he was going to say as a teacher of Torah, what was he going to say about this woman? And the Messiah spoke poignantly in the sense that he spoke one, basically one sentence, one, uh, one statement that basically answered and covered everything to do with Uh, what the Torah has to say about this situation. Previously, when I spoke about this, uh, back when we were talking about Leviticus chapter 20, uh, that was, of course, because in that in that Torah portion and in that instruction, that gave a specific uh, direction for the fact that not only the person who committed adultery, but both people who committed adultery were to be put to death. So the natural question was, of course, when this woman was caught in the act of adultery, the Messiah could have asked and said, where is the other person? 
because two are meant to be stoned when adultery is committed. It's also, of course, uh, connected to Deuteronomy 17, uh, when the where it says that witnesses, the firsthand witnesses of the act, were to cast the first stone. So when the Messiah said, those without sin cast the first stone, he's saying, all right, who are the specific witnesses? They will be the first to throw the first stone. And also, who is it that is without sin or who committed this same sin that this woman is being accused of? And that's when the Pharisees left and as they progressed out of the temple. Because sages have say, said and, and speculated that the Pharisees, uh, that this woman was a known temple harlot and perhaps some of the Pharisees there, the ones who brought her in to accuse her, perhaps had committed even the same sin. And so they walked away and they left the temple and the Messiah turned to her and he said, of course, that it's all like, where are your accusers? And she, there's no one to condemn you. And then he said, I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And so this entire thing happened, and there's connections back to Torah that the Messiah proved his true knowledge of the Scripture. Now, the one part I did not bring out when we previously talked about this was the fact that this is also when the Messiah knelt down and he was writing something in the dust of the temple floor. What is that all about? Many people have speculated. What was he writing? Was he writing names of people? Was he writing something? Was, was, he, just, was he just moving the dust of the temple, of the, just, just moving it around? Was he just sort of doing something uh, uh, casually while he was thinking or while he was talking? And we, of course, know there's no idle word in Scripture, and so there is something, there has to be something significant about the Messiah writing in the dust of the floor. Well, there's one verse in the Old Testament that it does connect to for sure, and I'll point this out just briefly. Jeremiah 17, verse 13, where it specifically says, those who have departed from the Lord or those who have forsaken the Lord, that they shall be written in the earth. And so when uh, the Messiah is hearing these accusations from these people that he knows and perceives that are also sinners as well, when he says those without sin cast the first stone, knowing they have all sinned, that he is actually writing the names of the people who have forsaken the Lord in the, floor, in the dust of the temple floor. Perhaps there's an interesting connection there. The other thing too is this, and this is where it connects to this week's Torah portion in the concerning the law of jealousy. When a husband was jealous of his wife, when he felt like that she had been unfaithful to him, she could bring him in to the priest and there were some sacrifices and some offerings that could be given on her behalf and that then he was to say, and there was a test basically to say, have you been unfaithful? And the woman could say, no, I've not been unfaithful. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to put, there's a test here. We're going to take some dust from the floor of the tabernacle. That's going to be put into water and it's called the bitter waters is what it, the sages call it. And these bitter waters We'll take with some of that dust, in addition to the accusation or the curse that is put against her, will be put into this water. It specifically says that the priest will write these curses in a book and he shall scrape them into the bitter water and the woman will drink the bitter water. And in the course of drinking the bitter water, there is a physiological reaction that will happen in her that will prove whether she has been unfaithful. It specifically says that her belly will swell, her thigh will rot away. And what that really is an idiom for is that she'll become barren and that there, this would be a very painful result, painful procedure. Now, the question is, is, is there real truth to the fact of that this particular mixture 
causes, um, causes some sort of reaction or disease or illness to, to form up inside someone's stomach and to actually cause this hurt and this pain. And one, and people have speculated that whether this really happened very often in the temple at all. Because really, if there was a spirit of jealousy or if this feeling of this man that he thought his wife had been unfaithful, that basically before they ever involved another person, before they got the, the woman was brought to the priest, perhaps the husband and wife may have resolved this uh, ahead of time to not have to get this far. But if perhaps the spirit of the man got so far, got so jealous, would not yield, that the woman would, this was actually a protection for her to say, look, if I go in, if I go drink these bitter waters and nothing happens to me, then I will be, I, I will be vindicated. I did not, I did not, I was not unfaithful to you. And so there was a, so a combination of things. One, this was kind of a last resort for a woman to either prove that she had been, uh, had not been unfaithful or for a husband to basically, if he, if he knows, if she will not, uh, if she continues to lie, if there's perhaps more truth to it or whatever it might be, that this was a way to end the argument, end the disagreement. In any case, what would happen, of course, is that there's this weird mixture of the dust of the temple, a dust of the tabernacle, and the accusation against her. And that it says specifically that she would become a curse among her people because she had defiled herself. And if this ever, if a woman ever went through this procedure and this was the result as far as her belly swelling, becoming uh, barren, and there being this uh, notice of pain or discomfort in her uh, as a result of this procedure. Now, let's talk about the Messiah and what the Messiah has done for us. You see, the Messiah has taken our sins upon himself. He has paid the price for our sins, our mistakes. He has taken the curse upon himself. As it says, cursed is he that hangs on a tree. And he hung on a tree through the crucifixion and then took all burdens and curses and sin upon himself. I guarantee you the Messiah paid the price, paid for the sin of anyone who has ever committed adultery. That's one of the sins that he took upon himself, as it is one of many sins that are listed in Torah. This woman clearly sinned that was brought, the adulterous woman that was brought before her. She had sinned because the Messiah said, go and sin no more. And when the Messiah then took the, the, the curse upon himself, when he was crucified, he paid for this woman's sin as well. One has said this before, and I, I love the, the phrase and the, the thought behind it because it begs deeper question and it has more to do with the deeper covenant that God has had with Israel. The Messiah, Yeshua, died the death of an adulterous woman. He paid what the, the pain, he felt the pain and had the burden upon himself and, pay, and, and died the death of an adulterous woman. If you remember when he died on the cross and that he had died and when the soldiers went to go break the legs of the people uh, who were, had been crucified, the legs would be broken because someone was still alive and basically breaking the legs of somebody during the Roman crucifixion would speed up the process of the person actually dying. The Messiah had already died on the cross after hanging on there for only about six hours according to the chronology of the scripture. 
And they, so they didn't break his legs. Now that fulfills another prophecy that not a bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. So Messiah fulfilled that as well. But then what happens is the spear of the, sol- the soldier took one of his spears and he pierced the side of him. Perhaps this was a test by which to make sure the person was dead and make sure they weren't just sleeping perhaps. And out of his side came both water and blood. Now, this fulfills also a water libation ceremony that happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. But if this was the result, if that's what came out of the Messiah's stomach, there was a swelling that took place. Water does not just normally come out of a stomach of someone. And so there was this understanding that his belly swelled when he was on the cross. Now, also what took place on the cross, and you might know this story as well, what was offered to him early on in the crucifixion was sour wine mixed with gall. What is gall? Well, many believe it to be myrrh or some other, um, some other medicinal herb, and he tasted it, but the Messiah refused it. A couple of things, reasons of what was going on with that. Um, what the, some say is that this was a drink that was given to somebody that would ease their suffering during crucifixion, perhaps to prolong the entire process. So the understanding of the Messiah, the fact that he refused to drink it and partake of it, was the fact that he was truly feeling all the pain, all the hurt of all the sins and all the judgment that he was taking upon himself. So therefore, he refused this, what would have been some sort of medicinal practice to prolong the crucifixion. However, he did taste it and that there is a belief that there is a connection to the fact that he partook of this bitterness prior during the course of the crucifixion and that by, by partaking of it, he then was fulfilling this type of sacrifice or this type of offering or procedure by which an adulterous woman was found out and was proven guilty by her unfaithfulness. Now, of course, we're not talking about the Messiah's unfaithfulness because the Messiah was God and God has been faithful to his covenant. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he is faithful to his covenant. When he says he will do something, he will do it. Israel, however, the bride of the Messiah, has been unfaithful, going after other idols, uh, forsaking every covenant, uh, disobeying every commandment, uh, killing every prophet. Israel has been unfaithful. Israel deserved to die the death of an adulterous woman, especially if Israel continued to uh, proclaim, no, we have been faithful to the Lord. Hopefully, the Israel never got to the point in which that it continued to, um, to, to lie to God in the sense that um, if the question comes, has Israel been unfaithful and Israel lying about it saying, no, we haven't been unfaithful, only they have over the course of the history of Israel, then we would end up in this procedure in which Israel deserves to die, Israel deserves to suffer, Israel deserves to be barren by which no other generations would come from Israel. Now, is that the case with Israel? Did Israel become barren and that there is no descendants of Israel, that the lineage of Israel just stopped at some point in time? No, of course not. There are still people that can trace their lineage back to that. The entire modern-day Judaism knows which family they came from. So they did not suffer that particular judgment. Why? Because the Messiah paid the price for them, for that judgment. Israel has been unfaithful. Israel has, has, is deserved to have the covenant and the blessing and the inheritance and all the good things that God has given to it. They deserve for it to be removed from them. But God has been faithful to them not to forsake them, 
not to leave them in the land of their enemies so that they die and waste away, but God is faithful to his covenant to bring them back, to heal them. So in that case, somebody had to pay the price for their unfaithfulness, and that's what the Messiah did when he partook of the bitterness and when he died the death of an adulterous woman. Now, I also, as I was thinking about this this morning as well, as uh, I was preparing this message, something else popped into my head as well. We, uh, the Messiah had just taken, eaten the Passover less than 24 hours earlier. He had eaten the Passover. And when you go back and look at the specific procedure of the law of jealousy, there was two things. One, partake of bitterness in, that's in the water, and then the words of the accusation was also put in the water. Where did the Messiah, where would the Messiah have eaten something that would have represented the words of the accusation? Well, the fact that the Messiah took that piece of unleavened bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. The fact that the Messiah's body was likened unto the word of God as the word of God became flesh. So one could say that that bread represented the word of God, the Torah, the commandments, all the words that God has spoken is what that bread represents, the word of God. It was put into his mouth and he partook of that. In addition to the bitter herbs that he dipped with Judas. The eating of those things less than 24 hours prior to his crucifixion could also be the representation of him eating the word of God and that then it led toward his crucifixion and him paying the price for Israel's unfaithfulness. It is Israel that partakes also of the bitter herbs. It is Israel that partakes of the piece of bread, the afikomen, that it represents the word of God that we put into our mouths. And when we eat of that... We are spiritually fulfilling the instruction by which have we been faithful to the Lord. And we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, that is why we are to not eat of that bread in any sort of unworthy manner. That we are supposed to focus or concentrate on the idea that putting the word of God in our mouth because this is the commandments and the instructions that we are to live by. And if we have been unfaithful to God then judgment could come upon us because we know what the Word says. When some people can plead ignorance. Complete ignorance. When they don't know the instruction, don't know the rules, don't know the commandments of God and have never been taught them, then when they go and do something and go and sin and do something that is contrary to Scripture, if they've never been taught before, you possibly could say, look, they, they didn't know. They've never been told. They've never been led to the Lord. They don't know what the Word of God says. They don't know what it is to follow a commandment of God. For those of us that do know what it is, such as people who keep the Passover and who keep the other appointed times and follow the Torah, study the Torah, and try to live by them, there, one cannot plead ignorance in that case. We must not take lightly the God's judgment that, his, that He has said about those that have been unfaithful to Him. That's why we have to plead for the, with the blood of Yeshua for the, our forgiveness, for our sins, for the mistakes that we have made, because it's only His sacrifice that covers us from becoming barren and dying and wasting away because of our sin. It's the Messiah that paid that price. This is what the Messiah did for us. 
And this is the, the, the connection back to this law that looks like some archaic law. This looks like one of the most chauvinistic, uh, uh, masculine, uh, benefiting laws in the Torah in which this woman doesn't look like she has any protection whatsoever. She can get hauled in by her husband to the priest, to the temple, and she's just subject to it. And it seems like this horrible, horrible law that is archaic and should be done away with, right? Actually, what this law has to do with, first of all, I do believe this law was not fulfilled and, and the, this procedure did not happen very often in the temple. I don't believe it was. Now, if there's a source that says that it, that it did happen very often, well, I'd be interested to see. I mean, I'd be curious what the circumstances were. Did these people still stay married? Was there so much unfaithfulness and so much bitterness between the two of them that the covenant was just dissolved by the time you got to this point or as a result of this uh, procedure? It's possible. I'd be curious about that. What I would instead look at it is this. This has everything to do with the prophetic nature of the relationship between God and Israel and the covenant that they have and what it means to be faithful to the covenant that one, ha that one has with another person. That's what this procedure really is all about. And as I said before, this also was a protection for the woman, for her husband, that uh, the spirit of jealousy had overcome the man and she could go in and prove herself uh, innocent and then the matter was done. The matter was over. To go through that procedure and then for him to still be jealous, he, he's got some other issues if that was the case. So again, when you look at this entire procedure that is here in the Torah, there's a lot more going on than perhaps some sort of uh, ancient archaic practice. It has much deeper meaning to all of the things that have to do with our faith in the Messiah and why the Messiah had to die in the way that he did and in some of the things that he taught while he was still alive, namely with regard to the adulterous woman that was brought before him. All right, one of the other uh, portions or sections of our Torah portion that we have in Numbers chapter 6 is the law of the Nazarite. This is a very interesting procedure in which a person could set a, a time in which they are consecrated to God that they would purify themselves and be able to get closer to God in the service of God, similar to that of a priest, similar to the way that a high priest would be anointed and sanctified to do the work and the service of the tabernacle and to be consecrated and set apart from the rest of Israel and the rest of the world, that this was a way that somebody could make a vow, a Nazarite vow. They refused to drink any wine or strong drink, which is another stipulation of the priesthood alone, and that they wouldn't cut their hair, and that they would then sanctify themselves to God, consecrate themselves for a certain period of time. When this time was over, they were then to go back to the, go to the temple, go to the priest, and then they would give a certain series of offerings, shave their hair that they had let grow for a long period of time, so that they would then be cleansed and show the fulfillment of their vow, this time of purification, this time of consecration. Now, one of the other things, the person could not defile himself during the course of this time. He could not come into contact with any dead body whatsoever. In fact, the Torah back in number six gives a procedure, the entire paragraph is on, if he becomes defiled in the course of his vow, then here's a whole other procedure to kind of reset the, 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 the situation and, and to, to uh, fulfill the Nazarite vow, even though it had been stopped because of defilement. Instead, if the time had come to a conclusion as it naturally would have, as the person decided to, they would then go to the temple and then bring themselves to be cleansed. Their hair would be shaved and they would do all of these things. Well, 
This is connected to our uh, Brit Hadashah portion for this week by going to Acts chapter 21. Because this was the time in which after the Apostle Paul had his experience on the road to Damascus and started teaching and preaching about all the things of uh, the words of Yeshua the Messiah, there was accusations that came against Paul. That Paul, being a Pharisee, was now coming and teaching against the Torah. He was teaching against the Torah. And he had been traveling along, he'd been preaching to the Gentiles, and he'd been teaching all of these different things. And then people back in Jerusalem were accusing Paul of saying, this man has, is teaching against Torah. Well, in the story of uh, here in Acts chapter 21, when he was coming back to Jerusalem, he was counseled with um, by James, I believe, that had said, he's like, look, there's people that have been accusing you of all these things that you've been teaching against the word of God, teaching against forsaking Moses and teaching against the Torah. And so what he then says is there's a recommendation for what, for what he is to do. Um, James is talking to him, verse 23 of Acts 21, where it says this, therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. And pay their expense so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that, that those things of which they were informed um, concerning you are nothing. As in, you may have heard rumors that he's teaching against Torah, yet Paul is going to the temple to fulfill Torah and fulfill Torah commandments. But that you, you yourself, also walk orderly to keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. This is going back to Acts chapter 15, that is specifically saying, talking about the letter to the Gentiles, that is saying these are the things that the Gentiles abstain from. Verse 26, then Paul took them in. The next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. This is also connecting back to the law of the Nazarite. At which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up a whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help this man who teaches all men everywhere against the law, uh, against the people, the law, and the place. In this place, Jerusalem, and furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. Now, verse 29 clarifies this. They had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple, which he says that he didn't bring into the temple. He didn't bring a Gentile into the temple. It was only him. And the, all the city was disturbed. The people ran out together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And now this continued the entire procedure in which this mob within Jerusalem came to pull Paul out of the temple, came to accuse him. And what follows in the next chapters of Acts is the accusations and the trial of Paul, the apostle, concerning whether he has taught against Torah. Now, what they don't realize and what we often don't see when we visualize this story in the trial of Paul is this, is that he took those men, he took them into the temple, and he fulfilled the law of the Nazarite. He would have looked kind of interesting in all of the course of this trial and these accusations because if he went and fulfilled this law of the Nazarite with these men, he would have been completely shaved. All of his hair would have been removed from, from his body. <coughs> excuse me, and that he was showing and proving that he had followed Torah accordingly with these men that were completing the law of the Nazarite. How can you accuse a man 
of saying this man speaks against Torah. Yet here he is dressed in a way with his head shaved and somebody's like, well, why is his head shaved? Well, his head shaved is because he was in the temple and he was completing the, uh, the laws of purification with regard to the Nazarite vow. Oh, okay, so this is the guy that teaches against Torah and here he is standing here just fulfilled a Torah commandment. Kind of takes the, kind of takes the weight out of the accusation, don't you think? Actually, it does. We don't see that when we read this story, but when you understand what the law of the Nazarite represented and what it meant, that then you go back, you read about it in Numbers chapter 6, and you realize, look, this was a major procedure by which somebody consecrated themselves to God in the service of the Lord, and this is a certain commandment that only a Torah follower would ever fulfill. Yet here's Paul standing here having fulfilled it. So the fact that he did these things was something to help him to prove. This was the Council of James, of course. Help him to prove that he truly was following Torah, that he was not teaching anyone to forsake the commandments of God. This is, is necessary to understand when it comes to the nature of Paul, the rumors about Paul. And anybody who might come along later in time that might say, oh, Paul spoke against Torah. Paul was against Torah, and he was telling people to not follow the commandments of God according to the law of Moses. The entire trial of Paul in the next couple of chapters in the book of Acts was all that accusation about that being false. So no one should come along after the fact and say that Paul spoke against Torah. The problem is, is even in modern times, some people say, oh, the apostle Paul, he started the church. He uh, proved that Israel was no longer uh, in covenant with God and that God forsook, a, a, divorced Israel. And now he married the church and that the Israel has been replaced by the church. And then, oh, by the way, um, uh, we are not to follow any Torah commandments. That's what, that's what Paul taught. Paul taught that we are to um, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament commandments and to not be associated with those anymore. Um, yeah, no, that's the false accusation against him. That's what the Pharisees and the, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem accused Paul of. Yet he proved that that was not the case. This is one of those things that, that proves the nature of the Apostle Paul in that he was a follower of Torah, yet also had the testimony and belief in Yeshua of Nazareth. He was a messianic. He was the one who kept these things, kept this Torah. Now, in all of his letters to all of the Gentiles, there was all kinds of things talking about the law and talking about that, that are we to um, forsake the law or we are to, um, that the law is made void by the grace of God. And he said, God forbid, surely not. But Paul's words, of course, are taken out of context so many times that they are sometimes confusing for us to understand and that many have misrepresented the Apostle Paul. Yet, when you read the whole last uh, part of the book of Acts, this is the whole reason why Paul showed him to be faithful to the law of Moses to the leaders in Jerusalem. All of it, of course, connecting to the law of the Nazarite. All right, last uh, passage for our Brit Hadashah portion for this week. Please turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 3. In our Torah portion, we receive the Aaronic blessing, the blessing we do at the end of all of our services, uh, at the end of all of our um, uh, evening programs, at our events, and the Aaronic blessing, which was the blessing that the priest poured out upon the people, upon the children of Israel, um, on a daily basis, so that the Lord would put His name upon the children of Israel and bless them. 
This blessing is encouraging. It's strengthening. It's, it's beautiful when you hear it, whether it's canted or sung or just spoken over somebody. This blessing has uh, had a great deal of impact. There's a new uh, contemporary Christian worship song that's only new in the last couple of months uh, here in 2020 that, uh, that was written and based on off this passage about Lord. It's just called The Blessing uh, that came from many of the uh, major uh, Christian uh, worship bands that are out there today. Uh, they all released it all at the same time. And it's all based on this scripture here at the end of Numbers chapter 6, where it says in verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so that they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. What a beautiful blessing this is. Now, Turning with me now to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, it's talking about the idea of putting a blessing upon someone else. Now, I could go to the passage uh, back in uh, Matthew chapter 5 where it's talking about the, Lord, the Messiah told us to not only bless one another, but to even bless our enemies, bless those who hate you so that even that you stand um, free and with liberty and guiltless upon that you have a hatred for your brother, but even you bless those who have given you hate. Well, here in 1 Peter, this instruction is given to us talking about not returning evil for evil. Follow along with me, starting at verse 8, 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Verse 10, for it says, and what's being quoted here is now Psalm 34, is what is being quoted here in 1 Peter, where it says this, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the whole idea where it's like we are the, do not turn our face against those who have performed evil to enact vengeance of our own. That is God's job to enact vengeance upon those who have committed evil, commit, committed sin, and who have forsaken God. We, in turn, however, need to be tenderhearted, need to be courteous, retur not returning evil for evil, but returning blessing upon those who have wronged us, our enemies, and who are, have done evil things. We give blessing to them. We pour out a blessing upon them. Because I find it interesting here, you go back and if you read the blessing that's given to our, us in our Torah portion, two times we're talking about the face of God, where it says the Lord make His face shine upon you, and also may He lift up His countenance upon you. Those are two very similar things. Um, we've always described it in different ways where a face that shines upon you is that He smiles when He sees you. That the, that the Lord, with that, when He sees us, sees those that He's in covenant with, He smiles at us. That's what a face, if it shines upon somebody. But then the lifting of a countenance is that your, His attention has been lifted up and turned to us. Not just a smile, but He is responsive to us. 
We do this all the time in conversations that, have you ever been in a conversation where you feel like the person isn't very engaged with you and they're kind of looking around all the time and they're not really, they're, they're kind of looking at you, but then they're kind of, uh, you know, fiddling with something else and not really paying attention? Yeah, that's because their countenance hasn't been turned towards you or been lifted up upon you because your atten their attention is not upon you. But if somebody is engaged with you, talking to you, eye to eye, face to face, they're hearing you, they're responding, they're, they're, their uh, face muscles are basically reacting to what you're saying and they don't break eye contact, that means their countenance is upon you and their attention is turned towards you. The Messiah and the Lord turns his attention toward us, toward us. He smiles upon us and he blesses us and he has his countenance turned toward us with a smile upon his face. Never do we want to have the Lord's countenance turned upon us with the need to judge us for the sins that we have committed. Did you catch that line at the very end of the, of the quote from, from Psalms here? Verse 12 of 1 Peter 3. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. His countenance is turned to them. But the face of God is against those who do evil. He has turned his face against those who have done evil. That's where he has lifted his countenance, not with a smile on his face, but he has lifted his attention toward those for judgment to come upon those who have done evil. That is the opposite of the blessing that is given for us in Numbers chapter 6. That is not the, the type of attention we want to receive from the Lord. Instead, what the blessing should be is that we pour out, God is the one who ultimately does the blessing. God is the one who puts his name upon his people. Now, the priests and those that have an opportunity to put a blessing upon somebody else, it's fulfilling the spiritual role of a priest and putting a blessing on somebody and being showing the love that you have, the love of the Lord inside of you, and you bear good fruit of the Spirit, that you show love and kindness and gentleness to one another, even on people who have wronged you in the past. That is what our job is. That is what our responsibility is. Vengeance is the Lord's. But when we understand that when we are pouring out the blessing, we are simply representatives of God who is the one who does the blessing. We need to not be representatives of God enacting vengeance upon the people by the mistakes that they make because we don't judge those things rightly and appropriately often at all. We might take vengeance upon ourselves. We need to leave that in the hands of the Lord and that all we do, do the job that only you can do, what our responsibility is as followers of Torah and as believers of God is to be representatives of Him, putting a blessing upon all the people, on our brethren, also those who hate us. That is truly what the nature of blessing is. And that is what we should think of when we hear that ironic blessing and be hearkened to these words that come to us from 1 Peter chapter 3. With that said, I wish everyone a wonderful Sabbath as you close out the uh, rest of your uh, day of rest and the rest of your week. And I pray that this message was a blessing to you. Let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time and this instruction. We thank you, Lord, for these passages of Scripture. We thank you for pouring out a blessing upon us for uh, giving us the words of the testimony of the New Testament uh, writers, Father, and also, Lord, for your Torah, your commandments, your instruction. Father, we thank you for choosing us from among all peoples, calling us by your name, for pouring, putting your name upon us, Lord, and blessing us in all the ways that we have been blessed. As we have received the inheritance of your word and your instruction, and Father, as we... Um, 
Take these words to heart, Father. May they lead us and guide us day in and day out. May it be like daily bread, Father, that sustains us and nourishes us in everything that we do. We thank you for your Torah, your commandments, your instruction, the blessing that comes as a result of keeping the Torah, Father. And Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have received through the sacrifice of your Son, Yeshua. So, Father, it is in His name that we pray all of these things, that we come humbly into Your throne room by the blood of Yeshua, Lord, and we thank You and we bless You and we worship You on this Sabbath day. We love You and thank You. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.